0: Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Semenko Chair and Professor of Law at the University of Pittsburgh and author of A City Divided, Race, Fear, and Law and Police Confrontations, David Harris. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, Upside and Henson Shaving, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, I the the story that really most rocked me this week. Not Ukraine, not the document searches, not Kevin McCarthy's inane statements, but it was a poll in one of our favorite venues, The Bulwark. It was conducted by Whit Ayers. I've known him in a long time. He's just superb pollster and analyzed by their brilliant CEO, Sarah Longwell. Now, let me tell you what it shows. It shows that Ron DeSantis clobbers Donald Trump by more than 20 points among Republican voters in a 2024 preference. And that's not a surprise. We both have agreed Trump is not going to be the GOP nominee. He's going to be indicted probably two or three times. Seems more unhinged than ever, surrounded by fourth, fifth raiders. But that poll also shows that 28% of Republicans would vote for Trump if he ran as an independent or third-party candidate. He is a spent force overall with a deeply committed, crazed core base. Now, he cares only about himself, so if he's going to be denied the nomination, you know, he's going to be under indictment, but I don't think the case will be resolved by uh, the summer of 2024, and he sees a chance to also scam some money, he'd do it in a minute. In a minute, he would do it. I don't think he would stay at 28, but if he gets half of that, hell, a quarter of that. Republican candidate DeSantis or Haley or Pompeo, they can kiss Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, Nevada, and North Carolina goodbye. And maybe Ohio, Florida, and Iowa would be in play. But this gives Trump just a huge leverage within that Republican Party when he is indicted. Because that threat is a real threat with him. And it 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 it's somewhat reminiscent of some sixty years ago when Nelson Rockefeller shook down Richard Nixon or party nominee at the treaty of fifth avenue but the mar-a-lago grand bargain if it were to occur will be the most corrupt bargain of all times i think this poll really is a is is a huge deal
1: james he he gives a crap about the republican party about as much as i do right i think you're more positive james i yeah i I follow him i'm a marital republican i have a, a background you know, run into Republicans all the time about here in California at breakfast with Carl Rove or whatever, Right? He can't stand that. And it's all about him. And, and I kid you not, if, if, if he's not in penitentiary, which I think that it's increasingly likely that he'll be out on bond at that time anyway, if, he, if, if there's some way to stop a Republican from winning, he's going to do it. He does not want them to win. Understand that. He can't stand them, and if if they win, and he lost the the last election, and if another Republican wins this election, that 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 he that would be devastating to him. The the poll is of course is right, which you say is right, and he's their freaking problem. I'm glad we don't have him.
0: Boy, and it is a problem because cool. as as he look, I I do think he'll be indicted at least twice. Uh, I'm not sure about the federal indictments yet. Uh, But uh, he will be indicted at least twice. He can stretch this out long enough. So whether he's tried by the summer of 2024 or whether he's appealing convictions, I don't know. Uh, But, man, will he use this. And it's got to scare the hell out of Republicans. Already, you look at those House Republicans, those investigations, everything they're doing seems to be Trump-related. They're looking at the deep state. Why are they looking at the deep state? Because of Donald Trump. They're looking at Anthony Fauci and COVID. Why are they doing that? Because of Donald Trump. They're even looking at whether the January 6th protesters were unfairly treated. Uh, the arrested, the violent mob were unfairly treated. Why? Because of Donald Trump. So he is, uh, you know, you've said for a long time and I've joined you, he's not going to be a nominee. He's no. just not going to be. But no. boy, is he still a, a
1: dangerous force for that party. Is it? Is, I mean, he, he's like having you know shingles. He can't kill you, but he just can make life so miserable for you. You, you, you can't believe. I, I mean, it, it, it's it's just stunning that his takeover. In in about a way, I, I if it's not Trump, it's going to be a Trumpist candidate. I, I can I can promise you that. But it, and you're right. His leverage and. And, well, he needs money and he needs fame. And the only way he can c- continue getting those two is stay in there.
0: Right. If I am whoever the no- nominee is, DeSantis, Haley, Pompeo, I don't know. Uh, and uh, my best case scenario is, is that, and I'm not sure you could get it, is, that, is some kind of Mar-a-Lago grand bargain. What he would demand— would be it would be hard for him to say you're going to pardon me because you can't pardon a, uh, you can't pardon someone from Fulton County or from Manhattan DA but he'll try to get something like that and um, uh, dominate uh, the campaign of any reply it'll be it'll just be a disaster but
1: God it's going to be fun to watch James you got to admit yeah I I'd like somebody I'm trying to think you how going to get on this plane and the only hope is that he. Has a heart attack and it croaks. I'm serious. I mean, I'm trying to think of how else they get out of this. Yeah, yeah. Man, it, it's it, it's hard to see, uh, how you know the exit ramp here. I'm out of thoughts. I mean, I'm literally, I'm like Admiral Stockdale. I'm out of ammo on this. I don't know how to get out of it. Other than what are
0: you doing there, James? Where are you? Who are you, uh, Admiral Stockdale? Um, I. Um, all of you out there. Uh, first of all, the Bulwark is a terrific publication. It really is, and they are these Republicans, anti-Trump Republicans. Uh, they write interesting stuff. They have interesting analysts. Sarah Longwell is terrific. Bill Crystal, Charlie Sykes. But take a look at that poll. And and again, James, I've known Whit Ayers for a long time. He is one heck of a reliable pollster. He may be as reliable Republican pollster as there in is in the country. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I,
1: it's I, worth yeah, a look. A 1st rank reputation. And the one thing I, I credit the Bulldog, they don't look back. Man, when they, they burnt the bridge. When they left the Republican Party, these bastards point the bridge. They, they not, they're not looking behind. They're not saying, well, we do this, we do that. They, 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 they sold your own. You know, I respect that. you got to tell me,
0: too. you know, you got to get precision when Tim Miller's going to be in Durham. I want my kid to go over and see him. February uh, uh, 2nd is what he texted and told me. Okay, Duke? Yeah, I think tomorrow. Okay. What
1: else you want to talk about? I mean, there's a uh, a lot of different stuff to talk about. I I, uh, I guess th- th- we got. I got to ask you about this because it it the potential here is, is pretty draconian, and uh, you know, so far it doesn't look like a way out. And that's this debt li- uh, limit that's coming up. I, I, I how do you see? Obviously, they're going to have to have some kind of a compromise. Right. Right? So what is it that, that people went crazy because Senator Manchin said, that you know, well, I'd say this, but he's, he's right. I mean, what, what kind of face? And they're going to have to come up with a way for them to save face. What can they do? What's on the table here? Well, first, they
0: have to do a budget. The debt ceiling won't really have to be joined probably until June or July. But they've got to come up with a budget a Republican budget in April or early May, that will force their hand to a large extent. They will not have a lot of, you know, cosmetic, um, uh, you know, wild, crazy stuff in there, economic assumptions, waste, fraud, and abuse and all that. But they got to have some real stuff in there. That's going to be hard to do, James. You can't get the numbers they want without cutting Social Security and Medicare. They can dress it up as reforms and all that. And I don't think they can have, I don't think you get 218 votes with that. So I think, Frankly, they've got a real dilemma. Joe Manchin is right. Eventually, you're going to have to have some kind of a deal. Biden will have to agree at some point, you know, to some kind of modest scale backs in, um, uh, in, uh, in spending. And, um, you know, Joe Biden also said on Social Security that one thing he would do is raise the, um, raise the ceiling uh, for that Social Security tax. I'd be for that. Uh, I really would. Right now, I think it's $140,000. I think someone making, you know, a million bucks a year ought to be paying Social Security taxes on it. So I think that's one compromise that uh, that would that would help, help uh, uh, you know, I don't think the system's going under, but there are going to have to be some compromises at some point. The ankle be anything like the Republicans are talking about. So we were talking,
1: and I, I, I've had a reevaluation, and when Bill Clinton was president, the State of the Union was... Kind of meant something. you were good for couple, three or four points on a, you know on your approval rating. I'll never forget when the teleprompter went down, he just winged it, no one ever knew the difference. But and it's just lost its panache. It doesn't really change anything. The audience is small and diffuse. I'm starting to think that this one might be somewhat more significant than, any, than any, in any recent ones. And I'm thinking that because he's going to have to lay out. His, his strategy on the debt ceiling. And he's have to frame that issue. You know, hopefully they do this. They frame it in a way and they, they keep that framing going into May or June or whenever they have to deal with it. So actually, unlike past State of the Unions, I'm going to pay a little bit of attention to
0: this one. I think you're right. I think what he's going to say is what he's been saying all along is, uh, I won't negotiate on the debt ceiling. I will, however, negotiate on the budget. So if you want negotiations, let's do it in the budget. Let's pass a clean debt ceiling at some point. But uh, you know, I, I, you got to have appropriations bills. Uh, you got to pass them. You got to send them. Uh, how specific he gets, I don't know. But his budget comes out, James, within a month. So he's going to have to be specific soon. I, I think you may be right, though. It may uh, it may attract a little bit more attention. Another thing is that uh, you know you always have the guests up there in the in the balconies. There are always people who reflect uh, uh, some interest of the party or the president uh i think they're going to have this time tyree nichols parents the uh the, the poor innocent young black man who was murdered by cops killed by cops in memphis i somehow think that may
1: resonate a little bit more uh, than most but
0: yeah i think you may be right
1: I don't know. It, it, in the end, he's going to have to give them, I understand what you said, is absolutely true, you just a student budget, not the debt ceiling, but I, they can't walk away without getting something on the debt ceiling. That's true. That just would get clobbered, okay? And, and I think yeah. Biden knows that. I mean, I, now, what he gives them can be, you know, they can, he's not going to give them evening ground, you know, it's probably a little bit more than a big leaf, but not much. But he'll have to give them something. Yeah. I, I just don't see how, how they can walk away with nothing.
0: Yeah, that's right. And the reason that if, if he were to give them more than a much more than a fig leaf, which I agree he's not going to, they couldn't pass it. I mean, you no. couldn't come up with something that they could get 218 votes. Those, you know, we call them the timid 20. Those guys who represent districts, those members represent districts that Biden carried are only won by 1%. They can't vote for what the Chip Roy's and the, and the Matt Getzes
1: of the world want. They just can't. So, one of the best, I, I use this all the time, was when Obama was president and keep him threatening t- government shutdowns, yeah. and McConnell knew, I mean, and, and he said that the best education is the second kick of a mule. There's a lot of it's a lot of wisdom in that. In that. And, he, and they, they knew he was going to give up. He wasn't. He wasn't. That mule was not going to kick Mitch McConnell twice, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe three times, or maybe he'd been kicked twice. I don't remember. But, I, 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 but that saying is just always stuck with me. One thing you notice in all
0: the statute talks, talks
1: you heard anything hang from Mitch
0: McConnell or the other Senate Republicans—I think they're kind of enjoying watching the House Republicans stew in their own. Uh, uh you know their own juice so uh, yeah they just licking their lips over the 2024 absolutely map. okay we'll keep okay. following this
2: <laughs>
0: hey james with that horrible tragedy in memphis We have the perfect guest uh, this week, uh, David Harris, University of Pittsburgh law professor who has studied the issue of policing and race uh, and reform for a long time. He's the author of A City Divided, Race, Fear, and the Law and Police Confrontations. David, uh, welcome back. Another brutal police killing of a black man, Tyree Nichols, in Memphis. Unlike previous incidents like George Floyd, This was committed by black cops. In these horrible incidents, there often has been a racial element. But maybe is it as much, if not more, culture uh,
2: than race for most police departments? Well, Al, it's good to be with you and James again, but I'm sad about the occasion that brings us back together. And your question, I think, is right on point. This is probably the thing I've been asked most uh, since the horrible video came out. Um, What we have here uh, certainly has racial elements to it, but the fact that the police officers themselves were black and the chief is black, uh, this reform chief in Memphis, that doesn't mean that this isn't a tragedy. And what we have, of course, is the incident stemming from the culture of the department. Every police department has a culture. Uh, Law enforcement itself has a kind of overall culture. And if that culture is accepting of violence, if that culture congratulates people who are in special units uh, with the job of going out and being tough, we should not be surprised when incidents like this arise again and again. When we say culture, we mean police are congratulated for uh, uh, being tough. We mean that they are rewarded for that kind of behavior. And we mean that misconduct and overuse of force uh, does not find any discipline. In that kind of a culture, you don't have to think about bad apples. What you have is a bad apple barrel. You have an institution, an agency whose culture rewards this kind of behavior well that seems to be exactly what happened in memphis
0: uh, four of these cops uh, had uh, committed offenses before nothing ever really happened to them and they were part of this special scorpion unit to tackle violent crime not traffic violations so I, I it seems to me that those units they've been in other places like oakland and they've had bad results and the people they attract inevitably might be more prone to violence like this is are, are these are these
2: special units just a basically a bad idea. They can be, Al. And, uh, you know, this is a story that uh, repeats itself. Uh, My 2020 book is about an incident that happened here in Pittsburgh in 2010 as a result of a special crime suppression unit. They were called the 99 cars in New York. It was the crime suppression unit in New York City. Uh, that shot Amadou Diallo 41 times. And this, this can be a problem because what we do is when we set up these special units uh, and when we allow officers to go into them who have a special kind of aggressive record, lots of gun seized, lots of arrests made, we get the results that you would predict. We get aggressive policing. And that was what the mayor and the police chief wanted in setting up the Scorpion unit. Uh, They wanted an aggressive style of policing to crack down on crime. And the results are often this kind of tragedy.
0: Right. They sure are. Uh, And, um, you know, because they don't draw distinctions. That's why they go after an innocent um, man like Tyree Nichols. Uh, You know, the question is, what can be done? Uh, The right wing House Judiciary Committee chair, Jim Jordan, said basically nothing. Uh, These were. This was evil perpetrated by five cops. No training or reform can address uh, these kind of incidents.
2: You agree? Oh no, no. Um, That is a uh, an abdication of his responsibility. Uh, In a big way, certainly the first and easiest and most obvious step would be uh, to pass the George Floyd Police Reform Act that the last House passed uh, by an overwhelming margin, I believe. Um, But even, even that wouldn't be enough because police in, policing in this country is hyper-localized. So it, like it or not, this battle will have to be fought for the most part on the local and state level. States can make a great deal of difference in how police officers are licensed, the standards apply to them, the training they get and the screening they get. And cities and towns have to do absolutely the same things. Uh, we cannot teach people to be good human beings. We cannot teach people uh, even necessarily to be good communicators. And yet that is what we need more than anything else to bring into our police departments. That's the kind of culture we need. We all want to talk now about de-escalation. I didn't see any de-escalation in those videos. And that's the kind of thing that is Cultural, And we can make those changes if we have the political will. James.
1: So uh, I referenced it and sent it to you. There was an article in the New York about David Kilpatrick about a 1992 study that is much maligned, but that has made itself as part of police training, that you you show real alpha male tendencies as as soon as you have the inevitable encounter. Uh, Is that a big problem, and is there a solution to that problem?
2: Oh, absolutely, James. You know, this kind of station house folklore is uh, common in policing. Uh, That study you mentioned, the study that says if you show any kind of uh, friendliness or, or anything. It'll be interpreted as weakness, and you put your life at risk. There's another uh, very famous study about the so-called 21-foot rule, that if the perpetrator, if the suspect gets any closer to you than that, you're in mortal danger. These things uh, were never proved out. Uh, the studies were not anything like rigorous. And they have deleterious effects now for years and years because police officers internally Internalize this, and training internalizes it everywhere, and therefore we're all picking up the pieces. Um, uh, you know, for years and years, the uh, the mantra in policing has reflected the study that you talked about in the New Yorker article, which is, and the way it comes out is ask, tell, make. You first ask people to comply. If, you, if they don't, you tell them they have to. And if they don't do it, then you make them do it. And that just calls for use of force far too often. What we want are people who understand that in the great majority of cases, not all cases, certainly, but in the great majority of cases, uh, policing is not about forcing people to do stuff. That there are other ways to do things. Uh, being a communicator, being a person who can persuade people to do the right thing, is far more important than being the guy who can beat people or rappel down a building. And that's the kind of policing we have now. We have warrior policing. It all stems from those kinds of misconceptions that you're talking about. So I've read somewhere, don't
1: hold me to but something like a third of the people at West Point parents went to West Point which means they grew up in a military culture, right? This must be an extraordinary number of police people whose parents or, or uncles or aunts were, were, were policemen also. I mean, they grew up in in, in, in the police culture some time ago.
2: Yeah, and that's a, that's a real factor. Um, you know, when you have grown up in the old ways, you're not likely to shed them unless you're made to do so. Um, we have too much in the police culture that reflects uh, the society of the past and not the society we live in. Um, You know, and it's very interesting when you contrast the current police forces and their makeup, say in Memphis. Memphis is a majority black city with a majority black police department, but unions in a lot of these places are much older, of course, because of the retirees, and they're much whiter, and they have old school attitudes often, um, so we really have to bring our f- police forces into the twenty first century in all kinds of ways. And it isn't just a training issue; it's how we relate to people, who we expect uh, 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 in the field, it's how we treat each other. It really is that basic.
1: So I can't appreciate this. I live in New Orleans, obviously, it's, it's concerned. In the city of Pittsburgh, I would venture to say there are 600 people that are going to commit 85% of the felonies. More important, you can know their names. All right? It. I mean, you just can't. I mean, you, I, yes. I mean privacy questions about this, uh, racial questions about this, a, a, a thousand things that you can ask. But it is literally true that you can know who is going to be responsible for vast majority of of the felonies in a given area, and you even can know their names. It can be done. And they don't do, they can do taking this and that. They can take birth records, arrests, high school dropout, neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera, and then spit out the names. And the Scorpion unit, you know, so people would say, well, yes, they were focused on a high crime area because you look at a, at a, a map of Memphis and most, the closer you are to the river, the more likely the, the crime rate is going to be high, because well, that's the poorest part of the city. This is not very much of a secret. But is there any way that we can use the data that we have that is stunning compared to what we used to have in, in, in a useful, and by the way, 80% of the victims of the crimes are going to be other poor people. You bet. So, how do how can we use the technology and the expertise we have, and apply it in a better way? Because it's just not working,
2: and given what we have, it should work. Oh, James, you've really hit on something important here. You know, it is true that in a Pittsburgh, in a Boston, even in some places large as Chicago, you can pinpoint the. 600 or 1,300 or 500 people who are most likely to engage in violent crime. And by the way, they're just as likely to end up on either end of the gun. They could be the victim. They could be the shooter. Now, what counts is what you do with that information. Uh, It enables you to do something called focused deterrence. You go to those People, not those neighborhoods. You notice I said people. And you focus yourself on deterring them. Um, the problem with a scorpion unit is that it focuses on a whole area and officers come to see that everybody in that high crime area is guilty of something. That's how they'll view everybody. And then you can't have grandma tell the nephew to go down to the store for a quart of milk without getting thrown up against a wall. Under focused deterrence, you focus on those correct people. And then when you do that, you take the right point of view. You don't just send cops. You say to all these people, "Look, we know who you are. We know what you're up to. We know you're at risk. We can help you get out of this if you want. If you won't, if you like this lifestyle, if you won't stop with the shooting, we're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks." And right. this works. It right. has worked. It has proven out.
1: I, I, I concur. And what they would do is they'd show up at your house and they said, "Look, partner." we've got a bus ticket out of town, we've got a job training voucher at the local technical school, or you, you better not make an illegal left turn.
2: Exactly, <laughs> okay. exactly. And,
1: yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. It, and that can, that can work. But, but just so you know,
2: a lot of civil liberties advocates would say that that's intrusive. I, well, intrusive, yes. It's also pretty intrusive to get your head blown off. It's pretty intrusive and damaging to the communities around you when you get sent off to prison. Nobody wants those outcomes. And in a place where you've got your finger on these 600, 1300, however many people, um, save their lives, get them out. If they won't, come down on them and you save everybody, the whole community, a lot of grief.
1: This is a discussion that society needs to have. It needs to be brought to the forefront because everybody deals with this. I've talked to any number of people, and yeah, we know the names. Yep. Not, you, know, some other area. you don't know the area. You don't know the, you know, the frickin' name. Uh, back to you, Al. Um, David, this is fascinating, and going through again what can
0: be done because I think you're basically an optimist and change could happen. It's just whether we have the will to do it. They tried to do it after George Floyd. I think there was a good faith effort by a bunch of senators and Karen Bass, now the mayor of Los Angeles. Uh, But one of the sticking points was that they they said, "Okay, fine, we can give even extra funding for police departments, but we want to condition it. This was Cory Booker, extra funding on these departments to adopt reforms, to do the sorts of things you're talking about. Republican Tim Scott said that's defunding the police.
2: Uh, that's a mindset that makes reform pretty hard. It does. And that's why I I have to say, though I am optimistic about the possibilities for change, I'm not optimistic about it coming from the federal level. I really think the game is local and state. Uh, I worked for a long time uh, with some very good people in Congress from 1997 through about 2010 on on measures to combat racial profiling. And part of that time we had Obama in the White House and we had Eric Holder in the Justice Department and none of that stuff ever got done. Um, This is a big, big moment. And what the federal government is able to do, uh, the movement on these issues uh, is not much. What Mm. we need is leaders. And we find leaders at the state and local level who can get things done. Um, and actually, they're closer to the facts on the ground that matter where they are, uh, and that makes them actually better and more competent actors most of the time. So I can retain my optimism on this only because I do see state and local people doing things. I mean, we have so far to go. But there has been change even since George Floyd. I, I've seen it here. I've seen it in other places, too. You see police moving out of a space, for instance, of uh, responding to mental health calls. We have a new unit in Pittsburgh that is being stood up in all of our zones where a, a crew of medics and psychologists will go out with police backup and they'll go to those scenarios and those scenes and keep uh, and, and, and keep it so police don't have to do the things they're not trained to do. So that's just one example of some changes that I think are positive.
0: Boy, you couldn't be more right. You know, a lot better chance than than uh, to try to get something done with the Jim Jordans in the world. That just is not going to happen. It was hard before. <laughs> not going to happen. One of the sticking points, and this is a, you know, um, uh, uh, can be a state and local issue, has is always been qualified immunity, which makes it easier for some bad cops, I think, not to be held accountable. Is there any, first of all, I mean, is there any justification
2: for qualified immunity? And if so, is there any middle ground? In the early going, Al, this was a doctrine that served some purposes in court uh, to uh, basically say, look, if you couldn't be sure of what the law is or was at the time of the incident, then Uh, It's not fair to put the judgment on the police officers. Over time, courts have bent over backwards so often and so grotesquely that qualified immunity now is an abomination. I mean, that's not a legal term obviously, but it is, it has grown so much uh, as to be ridiculous. You know, when you read these opinions that come out of our federal courts now about qualified immunity, basically there's no way to hold people accountable for some really egregious things.
0: Well, I, um, um, you know, we've talked uh, about it being mainly about culture, uh, but, but while race is a factor, if Tyree Nichols had been white he never would have been pulled over, would he, David?
2: Uh, Chances are far lower that he would have been pulled over and much lower that violence or force of any kind would have been used against him. I was looking at this very thing this morning um, uh, because I remember in the wake of George Floyd, uh, we got data that indicated very clearly that though Minneapolis had a fairly low black population, somewhere in the 20% or teens percent Uh, blacks were 50 and 60 percent more uh, the the likely candidates for all levels of police use of force. So I went looking for the same information about Memphis. And what I found was Memphis is, of course, majority black, two thirds black. But still, they're 84 percent of all people who have force used against them uh, in this one study that I found. And whites uh, who are 29 percent of the population, they are 11% 11% of all those getting force used against them by the Memphis police. So it is still about who the police see, which is another insight into your first question, Al, about black officers do this? Yes. James? So I'm going uh, go a little bit, but I'm a big fan of The Godfather,
1: all right? And if you remember Albert Neary, who late became Michael's God, was a was a. Policeman, or pretty much a rogue cop, but somebody tried to identify a potential thug that he was Italian, so you should be nice to me, and, and, he, and Albert Neary beats the crap. You know, it's kind of this kind of thing in reverse. I wonder if sometimes it's possible that some of these black police officers is opposed to, because we just thought, boy, if we hired black police chiefs, we could fix it. Well, we hired more black police chiefs than urban police, and it's hard to even... A, 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 integrated profession anymore, so much of it. And of course, the police chief of Memphis was a person, a woman of color, a black lady, black woman. And, you know, I, I don't expect that there's an answer to this, but it should be considered that we could have an Albert Neary problem on, on somebody's urban police forces where they, they, they take it out and get mad at,
2: at their own. <laughs> I take your point. I'm also a lover of the, of the godfather, uh, James. Um, and here's what I could say about that. I, I do think representation matters. And I think it's especially important in uh, cities and towns that have a, a uh, large black population to have black officers and to have black leadership. Um, but that won't fix the problem by itself. And I mean, the, the number of times I have had a conversation with uh, a young black person, older black person, who says, you know, the black officers are worse or this particular black officer is worse. They want to prove to everybody else that they're OK. Right. Uh, and so they're tougher on us than the white officers. I've heard that a lot of times. I don't have a study, but I have my own conversations. So I, I see some evidence for that.
1: Yeah, in my business, I, I I didn't like a reporter who I knew had ideological sympathy with me because they were going to be even freaking harder just to prove that, you know, they weren't going to be governed by that sort of political feelings. I mean, I almost did do better, you know, if I'd gone Fox. <laughs> I'd talk to a reporter from the New York Post or the National Review. It's just, it's, it's human nature. Well, you know where you stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, is there any hope that this can get somewhat better. I'm not, I, 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 I know just somewhat better, 25% better. Is
2: there any hope? I, I believe there is, James. I really do. And it isn't just because I am somewhat optimistic by nature. Uh, my view may be colored by the fact that I am not African American. So maybe I'm more inclined to see hope where others don't. I fully understand that. But like I said, I have seen evidence of change, not enough, but at least some. And I pointed out a few minutes ago how we're getting in more and more places, these uh, crews who uh, handle mental health and and, uh, homelessness and addiction without police being part of it. And I think that's a positive thing, both for the police and for the public. Uh, there are other things too, where there is more civilian oversight, stronger political uh, uh, civilian oversight. I think that's progress too. Uh, better standards and so forth. But change will be, I'm sorry to say, kind of slow to come because there are too many Tim Scotts in the world, too many Jim Jordans at every level who see any kind of change as, well, you're keeping the police from doing their job. And I just, that that's an unfortunate mindset. So
1: before I let you go to the last time you you were on here, uh, I think Al had one of them asked you about, you know, what, what are some departments that we yeah. looked at are pretty successful? You mentioned Camden, which was a small department, but you, you singled out Los Angeles LAPD as making— some real progress. Is there any? Would you keep this list? Would you add to it? You know, if I'm the police chief in Memphis and I want to send, the, you know, one of my captains to study something
2: that's working better, where would you send them? Well, I think you could uh, you could send a lot of places these days. I would send uh, a person to some smaller places, perhaps, uh, to talk to the former chief in Fayetteville, uh, North Carolina who said to his officers, stop with these Penny ante traffic stops that just get people angry and lead to catastrophes. Instead, we're going to focus on real traffic safety and I'm putting the rest of you on real crime enforcement. And traffic safety got better. Crime enforcement improved. um, And all because he saw what was really going on. I'd send him down to see Uh, Chief Lou Deckmar in LaGrange, Georgia, another small town who has uh, done wonders with that police department, uh, pulling it in some directions that historically nobody thought it could go. Uh, And I would I would still not hesitate to send him to L.A., the uh, L.A. Board of Supervisors and Police Commission, I think, uh, just gave that police chief another term. Um, There are places where it's going better. No place is perfect. But there are places that are doing better. Uh, and I think that's what keeps me going.
0: James, great question. A great note to end on. David, here's my hope. You know, we want to have you back. My hope is the next time we have you back it's to talk about the progress uh, that has made uh, that has been made since uh, here, George, here. Uh, George Floyd and, uh, and Tyree Nichols. But you are a great guest. Uh, no one's better on this subject. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Good to be back
2: with both of you. Great. Thank you.
0: Hey, James, House Republicans are set to oust Ilham Omar, a Minnesota Democrat and Muslim from the Foreign Affairs Committee, under the pretense of remarks she made that were considered anti-Semitic and her opposition to Israeli policies. Kevin McCarthy, as always, is covered by a veil of lies and hypocrisy. Omar apologized for one remark she made. By all counts, she's a conscientious member. I don't agree with many of her views on Israeli policy. I don't agree with many of the policies of this new right-wing Netanyahu regime either. But generally, it's a dangerous path to punish members for their policy views. McCarthy, however, is fine with Marjorie Taylor Greene or Paul Gosar trafficking with white nationalists, vile racists, and anti-Jewish broadside. Remember old Marjorie talking about Jewish laser beams starting California fires? Now, this proposal is also sponsored by freshman Ohio Congressman Max Miller, who says Omar brings dishonor to the House. This is the same Miller with a violent, rage-filled past who has been accused of physically assaulting his then-girlfriend, the White House Press Secretary. Miller is hardly one to talk about dishonor. James, i tell you what I want to do. We're going to check it. This comes up for a quote. We've talked about the timid 20, those members who represent districts Biden carried or barely won. If this comes up for a vote and if this Muslim scare attack works,
1: we're going to name every one of them on the next program. So I, I, I agree that you can kick him off the committee. I, I don't think Elian Omar is not anywhere close to the equivalent of Marjorie Taylor Greene, but I'll say this. Marjorie Taylor Greene said she didn't say Jewish state ladies. she said Rothschilds, but she's claimed that she didn't know the Rothschilds were Jewish. <laughs> I don't believe it. Elian Omar said she didn't realize that she said it was all about the Benjamin, that she didn't know that Jewish people were kind of tasked with the trope of, of, of liking money. I don't believe her either. But it, it's not the, the biggest crime in the world. She should be on the committee, but but that's what it is. So I don't, but my outrage, I, I guess it's not so much an outrage because, you know, we get these stories, and I'm sure that they're true. It's a win at any cost, and the football factories, and, you know, the, 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 you know, what these coaches do to get to the NCAA tournament or what they do. I saw a story that I couldn't believe. In, in Portsmouth, Virginia, in Tidewater, a junior high JV girls basketball assistant coach dressed up like she was a player and played in the game. And you got to watch it. It's a why. It's on a the video is on a Norfolk TV station There literally was one other person that was at the game that was not on the bench. All right? But (laughs) if you win at any cost, you're an assistant coach of the girls' basketball team in Portsmouth, Virginia. And you dress up as a player. And, of course, you're driving the basket, making basket after basket... I, I, I guess it's funny, but I do think there's probably a larger meaning somewhere in here. So when, as we prepare for the Super Bowl, and you know, we'll talk about my favorite is John McKay once said, "How can you say when there's overemphasis emphasis and when there's a billion Chinese that don't give a damn if we win or lose?" But but at any rate, I I, I just think that story just caught me. Is maybe we've taken this winning a <laughs> little too far? <laughs>
0: And now for our listener questions, again, what a terrific batch there are this week. James, um, Mark in Fort Pierce, Florida, asked, why didn't the National Democratic organizations put money into the last election cycle in Florida? Did they decide Florida Democratic Party was a hopeless loser? And if so, how did that happen?
1: Well, this is the problem, Florida. It's freaking expensive. So... They'll, they'll pour all the money that you want, you know. Say South Carolina and a lot of money, for Jamie Harrison and turned out to be very fruitful. If you would, you go into Florida, you, you you got to go in. Very difficult to win these days. I, I want to say there's nine different media markets in Florida, maybe more. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're expensive. I mean, Miami TV is not cheap, you know. Orlando, Tampa, they, these places of Jacksonville. I that these are not little. You can buy all of Columbia, South Carolina you want. You're not going to touch what it is here. And I think, in, I, I, for some reason, I haven't totally given up on Florida. But but you, you can't look at the last, the 2022 election and not be profoundly disappointed about Florida. Yeah. Now maybe some of that was, you know, Val Demings raised a bucket load of money. I mean, he was a it. great candidate. Right. So, right. so. The, the, the question that you ask is very savvy, very on point. But if you're divvying up dollars, when you divvy up dollars to Florida, that, you know, Florida's I don't know, the third most popular state in the country now, four, something like that. Yeah. But it's a lot. And there's a lot of different media markets you got to play in.
0: Uh, Mark, I think a bigger mistake for national Democrats and supporting organizations were not with letting the Republican outside groups outspend them three or four to one in North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina is expensive, too, not as expensive as Florida, and uh, I think it's more winnable. They not only lost the Senate race, but they lost the Supreme Court down there. So if they're going to put
1: extra money in, I think I'd put North Carolina ahead of Florida, James. By the way, I read something. I, I, I meant to bookmark it and talk about it the show. The Democratic AG candidate, I think, is now outraising the Republicans. I I can't say that we have all the credit or most of it, but our tirade about these down-ballot races, I think it's starting to take hold.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: That's on the take well, out. You know,
0: I, I, they, as I say, they made a huge mistake uh, in not investing in the North Carolina state Supreme Court races. A big one that's going to come up, and we're going to have Ben Wickler on this show, is that Wisconsin uh, uh, a state Supreme Court race in April, which will determine uh, which uh, side controls that state Supreme Court, which has just been, that was a state Supreme Court that banned drop boxes, that approved the worst gerrymandering in the country and crackdown on voting rights. So you're right, that's important, and, we, and we'll have a show. Yeah, I on saw that. Ben last
1: week in Fort Lauderdale, and he, he's anxious to cover the show.
0: Yeah, he is. But, but you, know,
1: uh, you know, it's interesting to see how much there's some skepticism that he's voter suppression, that we just had low turnout. Uh, how, how much they are to blame, mm-hmm. I have no idea.
0: Well, yeah. I've just done a, I'm doing a column on that, and I talked to people like our friend Quentin from the Warner. They clearly had an effect, they had an effect on the margins, but the margins determine races. You can look and, and, and you can see. And the black turnout uh, in Georgia, for instance, was, was, was as a percentage, was down slightly from 2020. I'm not going back to Obama. From 2020, when you had Warnock running a great campaign, spending $176 million uh, with a great campaign manager, it shouldn't have been down. It should have been up a little bit. And I, you know, they did a great job. But you know when you uh, when you reduce drop boxes, when you don't allow people to bring food or water, into and long long waiting lines, when you make it harder to get mail ballots, it has a, it has a small effect.
1: It wasn't much in North Carolina either.
0: No, I think the feeling in Georgia was at least that if uh, you know if without without that uh, infamous bill, that Warnock would not have been would not have gone into a runoff. But you know we'll we'll see. Uh, our next question is John in Chicago. Why doesn't the United States Senate debate like the UK government doing prime, you know, prime minister questions where they get everyone in the chamber and have an open debate? I'm tired of a single senator getting up in front of a microphone in an almost empty chamber and tell lies. John, you're right. I I think I I would love to have question time. I'd worry a little bit about Joe Biden these days, I suppose, but I would still love to have it, you know, maybe once a month uh, and have some kind of a debate. I mean, the Senate used to be called the world's greatest deliberative body. What a
1: travesty that is. So, yeah, I'd like any kind of change like that. Well, if, if people like are interested in politics and young people, if there's one course that you should take when you're in college, it's comparative government. All right? Now, in our system, we have you know, three different branches president's executive branch. Uh, first of all, I don't know if the legislative branch would even let him in. Uh, secondly, in a parliamentary system, uh, the Prime Minister is a member of Parliament. And that's how you get there. And his ministers are, you, you know, so it's an entirely different system. And I just don't think anything like that would, would, would work in our country because, in, by the way, Parliament has ultimate, and in the House of Lords didn't do anything, they got one body in. You know, they submit a budget at 9 o'clock in the morning. And they pass it at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It, it's just—it's fun to watch, all right? And I used to do it my classes and, you know, line them up like that and make them cough and—you know, to do all that kind of crap. But it, it, it's not going to work in our system.
0: Well, let me tell you what I think it could on a, on a very um, um, sporadic basis— one thing it does is, this is true of press conferences too, it makes the principal, the president, the candidate, whatever have you, think through, you know, what his or her positions are and how they're going to frame them. And I think they think them through more carefully. So, I, you know, I don't want to have it every week, but I, don't, I think three or four times a year uh, might work. But anyway, we'll see. You'll, you're going to like this next one, James. It's from Matt in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, for lovely. for you, and he says, Andy Bashir, 60% approval rating, nine-point lead over his nearest Republican opponent in this year's election. So what's Andy's next move? Run from McConnell's Senate seat, I guess it's in 2026,
1: or something maybe bigger, 2028? Well, first of all, he, he, he is a superb guy. He's a great politician. He, he's engaging. He's, funny, he's highly competent. I mean, a, you know hit, that Kentucky had gotten hit with those awful tornadoes in western Kentucky, and it was god awful floods in eastern Kentucky. And you know it was very good during the the coronavirus. They had the Brianna Taylor thing in in, in Louisville. Uh, boy, he here he is a star. Uh, I saw him at DGA. I, I, the government asked me to host a fundraising for The state dentist so I hosted a fundraising for in New Orleans, and. I don't know, but, but man, he, he, he's he got a future somewhere. I, if it's a, as a Senate candidate, as a cabinet appointee, I, I think he's presidential material at some point in his life. He's probably not there yet. And, you know, his dad was the, the, the governor of Kentucky. He knows government. He understands it. <laughs> uh, and he's, got, he's a man of enormous personal charm. I
2: mean, mm-hmm. we got
1: to, I think we're going to keep that I don't think we're worse than a 45 percent chance in Mississippi, and I, 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 I suspect we're not, we probably might even be fifty-fifty. Uh, Louisiana's the tough one. We they, they got a you don't have you don't have very many John Bell Edwards, do you? Yeah, no, you really don't. And for, but we got a we, the, the the guy who's likely to win right now is Donald Trump. In a state like ours, we can't take that. And I hope somebody thinks of something, because I'm trying to think of something, but I can't quite come up with anything right now. You have time.
0: Uh, day in San Jose, California, asked, do you think ranked-choice voting would increase centrist candidates winning congressional seats? It looks more plausible than it did a year ago. If so, what are the prospects for increased adoption? I've become a convert to ranked-choice voting. I think it has some real appeal. Yes, I do think it would make the, um, uh, it would make, uh, be harder for the right wing of the Republican Party and the left wing of the Democratic Party. I don't think it's a panacea and could dramatically change the House. Uh, but I think in places we've seen it, in Maine, Alaska, uh, I think it works pretty well. New York uh, mayor's race, um, you know, it's not always going to produce the results you want,
1: but but I, I, I'm i really attracted to it, James. I, you know, I just thought it was a kind of thing and um, there are some people about it. And, I, you know, I'm still not convinced the person with the most votes wins the election is a, a god-awful system. And, but I don't, I don't think this is god-awful either. It did it in Alaska. And, you know, of course, if it produces the result that you like, then you like the system. And it, it supposedly would cut down on extremist candidates you know, it, I think it's more designed to save the Republican Party from itself than anything else. But I, I don't know enough about it to say I would weigh in as slightly against. But I, I couldn't argue one way or Well, I weigh in slightly for, so we're
0: you right. know we're close. And I right. think we don't ha- we don't have enough experiments or evidence yet. But those we have, I say Maine, Alaska, New York City mayor, they're they're mildly encouraging. So let's see, um, Jim and. This is good, Jim and Cairns, Carnes, Cairns, C A I R N S, Carns Australia.
1: Oh shit, that's the best bill fishing in the world. I that's love to hear from these. That's off the Great Barrier those. Reef. Rich people paid about hundreds of thousand of dollars to go there and fish for black marlin, which I think is the most coveted sports fish in the world. But that Man. that place is very famous with rich sport fishermen. Those
0: down under people are, are our favorites. He said, why don't people battle the gun and police shooting issue with a pro-life argument? Interesting. I'm
1: sorry, I, I didn't Well, he's
0: saying that. that basically all these people who are pro-life, let's, you know, why are they pro-gun? I mean, if you're pro-life, why do you want people to start killing people?
1: Right, right. and why are they for the death penalty, all right? Right. That's a very interesting group of people. I, I knew them in Pennsylvania. They're, they're they're dwindling, a lot of them, are like nuns are very religious and they're called seamless garment Catholics. And and they say that life has to be valued at every chance. Of course, they're they're fanatically uh, pro-life, but they're fanatically pro-child nutrition programs, fanatically anti-death penalty. I mean, they have a a philosophy. They have a a view of the world that is consistent, right? Uh, and, And I think that the pro-life stuff, it's, it's all the stuff that just become cultural, just like the gun stuff. Who in the shit thinks yep. somebody needs to have a, 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 a Margeuse or, you know, assault rifle or something like that? I don't think many people do, but it's just its just become cultural. The, the, these assholes that I don't like, they don't want this, therefore I want this. And it, 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 the question is good. It's it's penetrating. It's on point, and the answer, if you think about it, is depressing.
0: Yeah, it sure everything
1: is, is fricking cultural. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, I think somebody's creationist people. You can't really believe the earth. If I, I know people that work offshore in Louisiana that that, you know, believe in creationism, well, you dig it up. Fossil fuels have been there for 2 million years, and you think that this is 5,000 years old. But, but it doesn't do any good to all with But that's what you find out. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It, it, that what they have is God tricked you by doing that. He's just testing your faith.
0: Okay. Jim in St. Louis says, do you guys agree that a fundamental way for Democrats to try to talk to red state voters— is to remind them that government policies play a huge role in their economic success or failure. To cite one obvious example, how many red state farmers would be around without farm subsidies? Yeah, and there are even better examples. One of the best, uh, which is now going to lose its uh, say, see, because uh, states are caving, was Medicaid expansion. Medicaid expansion, which was enacted uh, with uh, Obamacare, was initially opposed by almost all Republican-led states. And then every time it goes in the ballot, whether it's in South Dakota or whether it's in Missouri or Oklahoma, it carries. And North Carolina was one of the last holdouts, and now that right-wing legislature has capitulated. And Democrats have to take issues like that and explain to people... Here are the stakes. Now, she certainly wasn't a very good candidate this year, but Stacey Abrams did that in Georgia prior to the 2018 campaign. And there are other issues that you can talk about. You can't let, if the cultural issues dominate, you know what, James? Democrats ain't gonna get anywhere in those red states.
1: Well, what we'll about Andrew Beshear or Senator Chester or Governor right. Laura Kelly, right? All right? Or, 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 or my friend, Brandon Presley in, in Mississippi. I mean, people live and there are Democrats that live in red states that are dependent on this. And if we don't incorporate these people into our coalition and we leave our coalition to be determined by overeducated coastal elites, then that the Laura Kellys and John Testers and Andy Beshears of the world going to have... Nothing to go on. Plus, there's a lot of people like, you know, Governor Roy Cooper that live in you know, somewhat more red than blue state. You couldn't say it's hard red, but it's pretty reddish. So, you know, we 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 got to add our coalition, not subtract from our coalition. And red state Democrats be being one, uh, kind of a proud one. And, and the thing that's hard that only a red state Democrat can kind of understand is we are we're a pretty proud bunch. I mean, they, they, we really identify with each other. And if the National Party doesn't care about us, it, it, it's going to upset people to no end. I mean, look, Doug Jones did win in Alabama in 2007. it was extraordinary. You don't get a raw vote every time, but he did. All right? Uh, Kansas did decisively, in landslide-ish, push back on on, on these women's health restrictions. So, yeah, I'm not kidding. It's tough sledding out there, but it's getting made progress every now and then. Go send it to Testa. For God's sakes, man, run.
0: Yeah, 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 no, I agree. Um, um, Look, in, in, in North Carolina, 28 of the last 32 years, the governorship has been held by a Democrat. In Georgia, both senators are Democrats. These are both winnable states with the right candidates and the right, and the right message and the
1: right involvement. Yeah, Massachusetts not much more than 50-50. Yeah.
0: Steve in Mountaintop, Pennsylvania. Where, where's Mountaintop, Pennsylvania?
1: I don't, I don't I know. know. I well, guess different. it's in the T, but I don't know. Yeah,
0: that. I, I, don't, I don't know. This is, this is just for you, James. He said, Mr. Carville, being a son of the South and more importantly, a father, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on the use of corporal punishment as a means of disciplining elementary students. In the state of Mississippi, it would appear this sanctioned barbarism is widespread. Why is this still going on? i would also point out, James, your wife has told me you never even changed a diaper. So I suspect no. you never engaged in corporal punishment. I did.
1: I'd hit one of my But I saw that story last night. I, it, I, it was on a pretty big Excite, I, I wish I would remember. I, I, I'm so pleased that you brought that up because, and it, and it it's like, it of course it's more black kids that get hit than white kids, and of course it's in states like Mississippi and Oklahoma. I think to some extent Louisiana. No other west, no other country, civilized country in the world has this. Not Western Europe, not Southeast Asia, not Latin America, not anywhere. And I, the, the question is spot on. And I want somebody hit one of my kids, put a goddamn contract on them? I, the idea of hitting a child is like absurd. And some of this comes out of it's this kind of religious thing that, that this, this sort of, you know, I guess Doroshevsky thought of it, first crime and punishment. But that, you know, people are wicked and they need to pay for their sins. You got to be punished. You're talking out loud. In a guy like me, who I had a nun that made me sit right next to a piece of molding that would beat me over the head with it. Well, i fixed fix that. I had about two cans of Bandcamp and beans and fig preserves. And she put me back at the back of the classroom the next day. (laughs) <laughs> but I like when someone hit me over the goddamn head. Jesus. And, of course, it took it particularly disadvantageous to people like me who have attention issues. And, you know, not every 10-year-old can sit still. But right. I thank you so much for the question. And I, I literally saw that story. And I want to say it was something like the New York or the Atlantic, but it was some kind of site like that that I, that I read it.
0: Steve, thank you for the question. I'm sorry for some we didn't get to. I hope Philip in Uganda uh, will send back another question uh, because they really are good. So, James, um, uh, we are, we are uh, educated and edified by our listener base. Uh, they Every are uh, they're a terrific group. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, Upside and Henson Shaving in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.